Not. If you make it to purgatory, do you always make it happen? Yes. yes. For and sure. If you have somebody say that Gregarian is for 30 alone, you'll get out of the house. I would like to set that up for yourself just wow. as a saying. That's a saying. You put that in my will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Here's the money. Somebody buy me 30 years for Gregarian <laughs> Every Don Quixote has a son, <laughs> Sancho Paza. Paza. <laughs> Tell you how much I need it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's always Divine Mercy Sunday. Make sure you hit that one over here. Oh, you write this down. <laughs> <laughs> you like I'm in the middle of Don Quixote's story here. <laughs> <laughs> Any prayers? On the edge here. <laughs> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, as always for our life from you. Um, the fact that we're here together is a testimony to something in, in our faith, um, alive and working, um, obviously in the humor. Um, we couldn't have it without this great hope I think all of us have. For your presence with us, for all the many things you have done and are doing for us, um, strengthen us um, that we can be give ourselves completely to what you offer, to put everything out of the way, to make you everything in our lives so that our attachments to things don't get in the way of what you're asking. Hard thing, um, but there's a gladness and a glory in it to know that we're a part of your kingdom, that we're in it now, um, help each of us to know that in our faith, that that is our faith um, in you strengthen that spirit in each of us so that we can carry you to what we do, give ourselves to the, um, to the work of purification um, that you invite us to. Um, ask a blessing on um, Marion Perfecto. Um, Thank you. Help him um, in his efforts to find a job. Um, I don't think Mary needs it, but she does help quiet her heart. Um, special prayer for Father Flynn um, in um, his new parish. Um, he will have no problem. He's too good a person, but um, we change, we grow over the years. Help him to grow into something new, to, um, to bring a greater love of you um, to what he does to grow closer to you day by day whatever your call is for him help him to give himself to it completely let it be so for all of us as well while we're in this work of the comedia help us to um, take what we learn and live it genuinely not an easy thing to do dante's taking us past this world to final ends it means stepping out of our world in some way not giving it the importance that we do Help us to do that, to learn from this. Um, have the courage um, to live you and the humility, most of all with each other. We offer these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Can you all take out the soliloquy of the Spanish cloister? <coughs> Thank you.
I've got a couple of things um, that I want to touch on before we get to the committee, and I'll get to them in a second. But I want to I want to start get us going on this because I've put it off now for two weeks, and I think um, next week, just so everybody knows, um, we'll take a few minutes at the beginning of class to tr to find a date when we can get together again. And it was such a pleasure having that evening, um, even if the meatballs came late. Um, Don had to get to, back to school. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, great evening, and, and um, I know we'd all like to do it again, and I've got that movie. <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. What movie is it? I can't tell. I'm not telling It's a subtitle movie. It's a foreign movie. Um, we'll see what happens. I won't be surprised if we don't see you anymore. But what is what is wrong with his taste? I, I don't know what's going to come of this. We'll see. Oh, I wanted to say a prayer for you and Madison. If everybody would keep Tracy and Madison. Um, actually, let me let me just sorry because I wanted to do this and forgot. If I can pick up our prayer again. Um, watch over Madison and Tracy, uh, particularly that young girl. No, watch over that young girl, that young girl, that young woman. Um, strengthen her against herself. Um, it, it's a time when she has very little to help her give herself. It's not what she's learned. Um, I'd like to say a special prayer for Tracy. Um, She's conscious, she's aware, and Madison isn't in lots of ways. Um, Tracy carries another burden. In all the work that she does with her, going ahead, um, steady her heart, give her courage to give herself completely with you, and have the courage to set real boundaries, take real risks, even at the cost, the risk of losing her. Um, trusting that whatever happens, um, even if she loses her, seeds will be planted for something later. Let Tracy know that in the depths of her hearts. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Can you pull out um, some little look of the Spanish cloister? <coughs> I'm assuming that, that most of this poetry is new for you guys. Um, and we're getting a little bit away from the kinds of lyrics that we we had been reading through the literature's prophecy um, stuff. One of the reasons for doing the proof rock and now Browning is because we were in hell, and proof rocks, I think, is one of the most perfect modern poems about an infernal condition. So to me, it was appropriate. Browning was one of Eliot's precursors. He was a model for him. Browning was doing something that had not done before. Eliot took it to a much greater depth, I think. Eliot is um, so much more modern. Browning's on the threshold of, of what we all know today from the 19th century as that ideal of progress that defined the 19th century for so many people. Um, so many, were, so many people were taken up with that ideal. I mean, they really held to it with the belief that man was getting better and better and better, and there was nothing but a bright future for everybody. Browning didn't. <laughs> Browning was clear-headed enough to know that so much of that was an illusion. Um, and so there's a dark cast of some of his poems. And we're reading 
I'm going to read a couple of them over the next couple of weeks. This one, and then next week I want to do the other one that you have, My Last Duchess. Um, but I thought it was appropriate to do this tonight because we had just done Kufrock. So let me read this, and I think you'll see the, the relevance. Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister. So remember the context here is we're in a monastery with monks, friars, priests, men who are given to holy orders. They have committed themselves to a life of holiness, to take Christ to the world, okay? That's the call. Now, with that said, let me read the poem. <laughs> Keep proof rock in mind. Let me hear this, okay? Soliloquy of, soliloquy of the Spanish cloister. Grr. There go my heart's abhorrence. What are your damn flower pots do? If hate killed men, Brother Lawrence, God's blood would not mine kill you. What, your myrtle bush wanting trimming? Oh, that rose has prior claims. Needs its leaden vase filled brimming. Hell dry you up with its flames. <laughs> I, you, you can see the two of them approaching good. a dinner table. <laughs> well. A dinner table. And to all appearances, these are pious monks. But this is a lyric, right? I mean, that's where we've been in the lyric, in the interior. We're going inside to that place where, where, the lover declare, where the lover declares his love for the beloved. Until you get poems like this, okay? So, so um, this, there's a community of monks. They're going around um, as if they are sociable and pleasant and gracious and committed to the same holiness, okay? Hell dry you up with its flames. At the meal we sit together, salve tibi. When Lawrence comes and sits down, that's a Latin for hello, hail, hail to you. So he's just saying hello as if he's just being courteous. Salve tibi. I must hear wise talk of the kind of weather, sort of season, time of year. Not a ple plenteous court crop. Scarcely dare we hope oak galls, I doubt. What's the Latin name for parsley? What's the Greek name for swine's snout? So obviously they're engaged in small talk, and he has nothing but contempt for it. What he'd like to do is find a Latin or a Greek word <laughs> to, to call this Brother Lawrence a name. Whew. We'll have our platter burnished, laid with care on our own shelf, with a fine fire new spoon we're furnished, and a goblet for oneself. Rinsed like something sacrificial, ere tis fit to touch our lips, probably like the chalice for communion. I think that's the assertion here. Marked with L for our initial, he he. There his lily snaps. So I think that the illusion in the first stanza to cutting his um, his flowers mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. takes place here. That he does it and is glad that he can. You know, he's clipped his flowers. Saint, forsooth, while brown Dolores squats outside the covenant, covenant bank with sun chicha telling stories, steep tresses in the tank, blue-black, lustrous, thick like horsehairs. Can't I see his dead eye glow, bright twir of Barbary corse, corsairs, a pirates? That is, if he let it show. When he finishes reflection, knife and fork he never lays crosswise, to my recollection, as I do, in Jesus' praise, I, the Trinity, illustrate, drinking water, orange, pulp, in three sips, the Aryan frustrate, while he drinks his at one gulp. That is, he's uncouth, unmannered, but the speaker 
is very aware of manners, places his fork as if he's ex expressing a piety, you know, the love of the Trinity. So outwardly, he's performing all of these acts, even when his briar is, or his brother, his brother friar is probably not as mannered and not as careful about these things, takes his drink in a big gulp. And, oh, those melons, if he's able, were to have a feast so nice, one goes to the abbot's table, all of us get each a slice. How go on your flowers? None double, not one fruit sort can you spy? Strange. And I too, at such a trouble, keep them close-nipped on the slides. So, so when Florence is not around expecting his flowers to be growing, he's going around snipping them off. Um, there's a great text in Galatians, once you trip on it, entails 29 distinct damnations. I think this is from Galatians 5 or 3 where Paul list the things that the Christians are not to do at risk of themselves. <clears throat> One sure if another fails, if I trip him just to dine, sure of heaven, sure can be, spin him round and send him flying off to hell. A manichee? Oh, my scrupulous French novel on gray paper with blunt type, simply glance at it, you grovel hand and foot in Belio's gripe. If I double down its pages at the woeful 16th print, when he gathers his green ages, open sea and slip into it. Or there's Satan, one might venture pledge one's soul to him, yet leave such a flaw in the indenture as he'll miss till, past retrieve, blasted lay that rose acacia we're so proud of. Hi, Z, hi, I think the bell for Vespers right now is going off, so he's jumping and you know, he's got he's to move. Hi, Z, hi, there's the Vespers. Plina gratia, Ave Virgo, um, Hail Virgin, Grace. Grr, you swine. <laughs> so he's, not, he's going off to prayers. I just have this brief question because this, <laughs> this is not our principal concern, but I'm glad to be reading these lyrics so that you're, I mean, you're, when I think about this, you're getting an amazing exposure to the lyric tradition. Um, lots of critics look at this poem as just comic. Some critics look at it, um, I don't know, with alarm, that it seems such an indictment of somebody in a religious order. But the response of most critics is, those critics are taking things much too seriously. This is comic, this is comic, it's a parody, and, and we should leave it at that. So just briefly, your response. It's always truth and parody, you know. You have to yeah, it's true. It's true. You can't parody if you're not setting yourself against something here. But speak to the truth then. I mean, even if even if it's parodic, and what's what's your response to this friar? That's sad. Okay. Not very pious. <laughs> no. I, you know that I've claimed that um, proof rocks damned. Some people may have a different reading of that, but I think he's damned. What about this friar? Right up there with him. What? Right up there with him. <laughs> right, up there, right down there with him. <laughs> right up there. I think it shows he's just human. Just human? Mm -hmm. Anybody else? You can't live day in and day out with in a group like that and not have somebody that's going to get on your everlasting nerve. I mean, even St. Therese of Lisieux had right. 
right. you know, and she she came up with strategies to 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 yeah. deal with it mm -hmm. as she as she thought Jesus would want her to, mm -hmm. or whatever. And mm -hmm. so, the one thing I guess I would say would be missing from this poem is that. That's, is what? Is that effort to, you know, well, I think oh, this, oh, but right. I'm going to take right. a deep breath. And, but he doesn't. And, right. That, but he that doesn't. would be the one thing missing. Yeah. There's yeah. no substance. Sorry? There's no substance to this person. No what? Substance. Substance. To he's, him. Yeah, to him, because yeah. he's, he's looking everything yeah. in a very superficial type of way. Yeah. He, he's not very Christian. And I would say not even holy orders, I would say families, marriages. I mean, I think sometimes their husbands and wives have got to face moments where, you know, we don't say things underneath and have to catch ourselves and say, stop, you know, because, because it is so human. Um, he covers a lot of landscape here. It's not like he had a bad day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. This, is, this is global. Right. No, it's true. <laughs> I would say he's he's a he's a prototype of the damn kind of figure that Ellie. And let me give you a reason why. He is human, um, but he's he's so without any. I mean, I, uh, Tracy and you guys have said it well. There's he's so lacking in anything to counter that. Everything is so mean-spirited, everything. Um, and, um, you know, all this stuff about murder and um, cutting off his flowers and um, invoking Satan, and it's all done comically. You, you have, it's, it, and it's got a rhyme scheme, so the whole structure of the poem invites a, a, a response to the comic quality of it. But remember Christ's, <laughs> remember Christ's injunction. Um, you've heard it said that um, um, not kill. I'm telling you, if you feel angry in your heart, you've already, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if it's in your heart, you've already, because Christ's concern is always with the interior, far more with the Jewish code of observances seeming to be good on the outside. I mean, if there's anything going on in this course that we've been doing together, it would be to get past appearances. The, all of these poets are showing us our world and, and helping us to see things aren't the way they seem so often. And in this particular poem, it seems to me it's impossible to come out of it just dismissing. This guy is so completely wishing harm on his neighbor. And it's all, it's all, it's none of it's acted on. There, some of it. This, this, this. Right, but I mean openly where people can see. He, he's not right. Well, that and other things. Um, to all appearances, he's doing everything properly. But in his heart, he wants this guy dead. I mean, he just wishes nothing but bad on him. So, this this whole thing about the the uh, mortal sins—committing murder, committing adultery—Christ did not take that away. What he did was make it harder because he said. You've heard it was said, this, 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 I'm telling you. Because there's a lot that goes on inside the human soul that people don't see. And one of the beauties of what these modern lyric poets are doing, Browning, Eliot, and some others, particularly, particularly Browning and Eliot, nobody's done this the way they have. They're too good, and they're rare. Most, you know, as, as you've seen, most lyrics are expressions of love, something we could admire. 
what these two poets did was go into the interior and show there's a lot more going on there than we usually see or often see. So, okay, next week we'll do My Last Duchess. If you think this one was <laughs> comic, <laughs> wait, wait, do you, wait till we do that. Okay, before we, before we begin, I want to take a minute. Carl came up after last class. I hope I can do justice to this, Carl. Um, he was, I can't remember, I think, I think it was um, during that segment where I was talking about the difference between literature and science and saying that literature was um, uh, accretional and, is that the, yeah, and, um, science threw everything away. And, and science residual, <laughs> science residual. I, I don't want to take a long time. Let me, let me make a couple of comments because I, it's, it's, I, I find myself trying to walk a fine edge and I, I may slip off of it. You guys, you guys may be more aware of things that I'm not because I try to keep a fine edge. But when I think back over the time that we've had together, I would say <laughs> I've had very few positive things to say about modern science. It's just, and that's not because I don't value science at all. And I hope, I hope that's come across. Um, the words that I quoted last week were from Donald Cowan, who is a great physicist and the, and the president of UD, University of Dallas, came from a book of his called, um, God, I think Prometheus Unbound. He and Louise Cowan, married couple, Louise was in literature, Don, Don was in physics, and they, they were married and spent a lot of their time talking together. And, so they informed each other, and, and anybody who would have known them would have known how important physics and poetry was to both of them. Donald wrote this book on education because he was concerned about what was going on in education. UD set itself on a course knowing that they were putting themselves at odds with most of the universities in the country. They had a strong commitment to sciences and physics, and they had a strong commitment to literature. Um, but Donald himself is the one who coined those phrases and said literature is accretional and poetry is residual. Literature always carries the past forward. Science tends to leave the you past behind. Um, science tends to leave the past behind because it's always, it's correcting itself. So um, there's little reason for going back to Ptolemy when Copernicus corrected him and Newton corrected him and Bohr's and Einstein and moderns have corrected them. I, most of us at UD, I certainly feel, feel that way strongly, more than I can say. I believe in science really strongly. If you listen to the, the really great scientists, I'm thinking of Heisenberg and Bord and Einstein. Um, I, Heisenberg said once, what was his line? If, if you think you've used words to describe reality, then you don't understand that you don't understand reality was his belief in that there was always more to know and that no matter what physicists discovered, they were only on the tip of something that would continue to be discovered forever because their belief was that this stuff, the ultimate thing that are knowable are eternal, infinite. So I think the really greatest scientists are always, I, I believe, the really greatest scientists are amazing men and that the great scientists and poets, in some sense, um, stand together even though they look at the same thing differently. 
Um, and I just want to leave you with this, just to, so you be clear, because I, when I think about my own presentation, my own field for the last three years, we've been together. I think you've heard me say over and over again that I don't think much of literature today. It's not just the sciences. I'm sorry to see what's going on in the literature. It's just it, my field is literature, so I'm teaching it. I'm I can't teach the sciences. I don't. You know, I don't have. I don't have the brass of it. But I believe that there are really great works of literature that do something that other works don't, just like there are lots of scientists who do things that others cannot. But I want to put this scheme out because it's, it's, it's one I believe in deeply, that science, science means scientia, from the Greek, scientia. Science just means knowledge of. That's all it means. Science is a knowledge of. St. Thomas believed in science, so do I. But his understanding would have been different from the understanding of most people today. And I'm thinking about the empiricist scientists because that's the dominant field in our world today. The empiricist scientists believe that nothing is real, that we can't grasp with our senses what can't be quantified, measured. Most great scientists don't believe that. Heisenberg doesn't. Einstein doesn't. But that's the typical mindset. In the, scheme, in the scheme of things, in, in terms of knowledge, all of those men, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, even the modern scientists, would have said, science is low on the scale of knowledge. At the highest, the top of the scale of knowledge is wisdom, and most of it would associate with scripture, because it's God's knowledge. It opens on infinite things. In between are physics and metaphysics. You can even call this theology in here, somewhere in here. Physics gives us a knowledge of things in motion and things that undergo change. Metaphysics deals with the same world insofar as it's um, concerned with being. Being itself as something unchanging. Okay. Um, and they would have called metaphysics the highest form of knowledge. They would have called it the queen of knowledge, along with theology. And the regulative um, science, because it, sh it should regulate all the others. It's the one that keeps all the others honest. Science by itself can't do that. It, it doesn't have... It, it doesn't open itself to a grasp of ultimate realities in the way that metaphysics does. So. That's just a, a, a brief thumbnail sketch. Literature would have to be somewhere in here in the sense that it's dealing with human things. And so much of the literature that we've been re dealing with is set in the temporal order, in the human order, but it's always making us aware of something higher that enters this world. All the literature that we've been reading, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it here. So. so um, if, if, I was, I, if I was saying something that I wasn't aware of, I, I'd want to be careful. Um, I'm not sure that I was. What I do know is the, is the phrases that I was using, accretional, residual, I believe are fairly accurate. Those come from a really good physicist. Um, and, and not only that, thinking about the importance of physics in education today. Um, I personally, I think Don felt the same way, Don Cowan. Um, 
was sorry that people going into physics today would not go back and read Ptolemy or Euclid or and then move forward because to whatever extent they don't know the past and see what happened to correct it, I believe they lack something of a theoretical power for bringing their mind to bear on current problems. That when physicists just jump into the present without knowing the past, that they lose something. Um, anyway, just a brief note on science and um, particularly in that segment because I was trying to define literature again. Um, now on a comic note, I can't. <laughs> um, I, we're gonna we're gonna turn to the Divine Comedy. I saw Gita at the wreck the other day, and she she was asking her how she was finding the Divine or Inferno and whether she was out of it yet because I was assuming she would have been glad to leave it. And then she described something that happened at church. <laughs> Tell everybody because it's so comic. It was really so funny. <laughs> I I was late to church, so I sat you know with the babies the baby's cry room. So they had, so I was sitting behind this lady who was inside the church and she had a black coat on and I was standing right behind her with my blue coat. And, and I think she was the same height as me so I could see my reflection in the glass and it looked like I was looking backwards. And I didn't want to take a picture, but maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping everybody's making the connection there, and the sowers of discord remember their heads were turned and um, just... I had the impression that you were laughing to yourself and that everybody was looking at you and thinking, what's this woman? What's going on? <laughs> James Joyce, any modern, would have loved that scene. They would, they would, they, honest, I'm not kidding. They would find they would find a way of bringing that scene into a piece of literature or, or a piece of literature because it is so good. It is so good. Good good literature is full of those things. You're all making the connection. Yeah? Aren't there times in our life where something's going on and suddenly some strange thing happens and it triggers, or or something else triggers it and we put two things together and it's grotesque and funny and um, grotesque comedy is made up of those things. It just Funny. I so enjoyed that. Okay, let's let's we're gonna start the the purgatorio. Very very quick um, recap of of the inferno that we're leaving. Some of the more important questions that I've asked is, does Dante grow over the course of the inferno? And I would say he does. We talked about this last week, um, and I, I want to go back to it because some of you had different responses to this. Don't forget that in hell, we're in a world of final ends. Um, remember we talked about those scenes towards the end where he kicked Baca and, and then pulled hair out of him, <laughs> um, forcing him to give up his name, and he wouldn't, and, and then he made a vow to Averigo that he would... Um, take the crust off his eyes. Yeah. He made a vow and went, went against it. And, um, and lots of modern critics are critical of Dante because they don't have a sense of final ends. It's as if they forget that. We can't 
Dante's taking us into final ends. There's, there's no more decision there. Um, the Karen um, mentioned that principle that's supposed to be real for all of us in this world. To um, love the sinner, hate the sin, to, to hold on when we're dealing with sin because we've been asked to hope even when we don't have hope. So um, for us to damn somebody puts us in danger. We talked about that when we were doing Hamlet, remember? Hamlet wants to damn Claudius. After he proves that Claudius is the murderer of his father, he wants to kill him. And the next scene, he sees Claudius a prayer. And he says, this is a fine way to avenge my dad. Well, this is higher. Working higher, whatever that phrase was. Um, I kill him and send him to hell. It's a nice way to avenge my dad. He wants to wait until he finds him doing something that's damnable. And I've, and I've made the point that at that point, I think Hamlet's facing his most serious danger. And on the surface, nothing's going on. He's not, he's not fighting anybody. He's not killing anybody. He walks by. But in that moment, he's violating, putting himself at risk in the second commandment. Don't speak for God. It's not for us to say who's damned or not. If we di- I mean, we can swear. You know, that's not the same thing. God isn't saying, I don't believe God is saying don't swear. He's saying, don't speak for the Lord. That's not our place. Dante's in hell. There's nothing there to love. There's nothing there. Um, so I think what, what, what Dante's showing us um, is that he, he has got to grow um, more loving and less susceptible to pity. He's got to learn to order his emotions because he's too given to pity. And I made the distinction last time. Pity's the emotion that we feel when we identify with somebody else in their suffering. So our self is too much involved in it. There's something egotistic in it. It's self-serving a little bit. Love means loving another for the good. That means doing only the good. Um, and, and to do that means sometimes we have to put our pity away. Um, Dante's learning to do that. He's becoming firmer and firmer. We're even going to see it at the beginning of the Purgatory. I, I just think it's what Dante's doing is amazing. Um, <clears throat> he's got to learn to put pity away, not because pity's bad. Pity is a natural emotion. For any of us not to feel pity for the suffering of another, I think is a failure on our part. Dante will show that. Um, but to get caught in it, to, um, to make that a habitual response isn't good for us or for our relationships that we've been called to love. So that's the first thing. The second is um, that one of the reasons it's not good for Dante to pity is because for him to pity those souls is to go against God's order. That he's just like Francisca, remember? And she said, if only the king of the universe were friendly to me. She's implicitly blaming him. Her emotions are out of order. Dante's got to learn to bring himself into line. So for him to add punishments to these sinners is to be in accord with God. I think that's ultimately what we take away from this. And don't forget, we're in final ends. We're not in the world. If we take those things into the world, then I think we're in trouble. Dante's learning something. Remember, he's got to come back to the world and live when he sees this. So. So I think he is growing, and he's going to continue to grow. We'll 
see as he goes up th through purgatory, he, um, he will continue to grow. Um, um, very basic, basically, the differences between the inferno and the purgatory is hell is a place in which the people have lost the good of the intellect. We already know that. They can't see. They don't have knowledge. Everything they do know is wrong. They don't see well at all. Dante's learning to see. Hell is a place in which people are trapped mechanically in their motions. And I want to put this down as a formula. Motion without free will or thought is a machine. Let me repeat that. Motion without free will or thought is a machine. Either that or it's a zombie. I hope everybody sees that. As human beings made in God's image, the things that define us are our free will and our intellect. We can know. And with our wills, we can move towards what our mind helps us to see and love in our wills. So essential to us are these powers of free will and knowing. Motion without free will or thought is a machine or a mummy or a zombie. Okay. I would say even in some ways a vampire. But, um, well, truly, I mean, I, I think the vampire stories are an, it's a byproduct of the Christian world because they want to suck blood in order to live. Christ gives his body and blood in order that we live. So that's a perfect parody of the Christian world. It grows out of it. Um, people in hell are trapped like machines. In a sense, we can say they've almost become machines. They can't vary their action. They're caught. They're trapped. There's no growth. There's no moving forward. They're trapped in a single motion. Um, they're in a darkness. They don't see very well. They use each other. When we enter the world of purgatory, we enter a world of sunlight, of movement. People are now moving. They're changing. They're doing what human beings should, should be doing in life. And they're doing it with hope. And they're working together. So instead of using each other to work out their own punishments, they're actually helping each other all the way through. Um, one of the basic activities to the purgatorio is prayer and, and singing. All the way at purgatory, we're hearing people sing and people prayer, pray. Dante is going to um, deal with those activities in the opening cantos. Immediately, we're going to see how important they are. And the last thing that I just touched on last time is, it's interesting to, to put the two worlds together because what we see is that what defines the action of the inferno is irony. Dante's outside of that world looking at everybody. None of those people is outside of his world looking at himself. So the last thing you can say about the inferno is, is that people are fulfilling the quest for self-knowledge. That should be fundamental to our lives. It's one of the fundamental gifts to us, for us to grow in self-knowledge. That's what Dante's doing, right? He started to climb that mountain. Clearly, he did not know himself. That's got to be so important to see. He thought he could go up that mountain, and he can't. Why? I mean, I think there are two basic reasons. The, the second is love, but the first one is self-knowledge. He does not know himself. He, can't, he cannot go to purgatory without coming, without learning to see his own sins and getting serious about them. So Virgil's taking him there so he can see the real nature of sin, so he has the help of a knowledge to curb him. 
Um, so the mode of the action of the inferno is irony. Dante stands outside of that world, and by doing that, he's encouraging us to do the same, to stand outside our world, because if we don't, we can't see ourselves very well. Yeah? Um, is that clear? Is that, I want just, I hope it's, I mean, it's, it's so fundamental to everything we're doing. Um, if we're not reflecting, we're not seeing ourselves, how can we change? How can we get better? Um, in purgatory, the mode of knowing is not irony any longer. You know that from the opening cantos. You'll, we'll see it in every, almost every canto that goes, that goes forward. The mode of knowing is wonder. Over and over and over and over again, Dante's got questions about something and the people look at him in astonishment because he doesn't have a body. So it's raising all sorts of questions and all sorts of wonder. People are aghast that he could be there. It's a part of the movement forward. Why? Because um, wonder's the basis of all knowledge. I want to put that again. I mean, it probably, I mean, you probably all know this in your bones. Aristotle said the beginning of the beginning of wisdom is wonder. Wonder means not knowing the causes of things and wanting to know. Too often, I think, when we grow up, when we're children, we wonder everywhere. Why does the ball come back? When you drop a ball, why does it come up? When you drop plates, why do they break? You know, I mean, all, you, you, I mean, the, think about how amazing the world has got to be to a child. He, he, he's not going to stop asking the most obvious questions. Sadly, we stop. I mean, it's as if the most we think we're above the obvious thing. One of the greatest professors I had, the, and then the motive for this book that I just finished, just so you know, one of the one of the yeah right. Um, one, one, I'll never forget it. One of the things this professor said in a in a I, I so admired. I mean, he taught in the politics department, and I was. I majored in English, but I was doing a minor in politics. And they didn't teach politics, political science, it was politics in the old sense. He said, one of the most important things you want to do in your life is never overlook the obvious, because everything's there. And I think how we so live in our heads, typically, that we look past obvious, it's like there's nothing there. If, if what I've been saying has any truth to it, and God's at everything in the world, then there's always something there. Do we ever stop enough to look at it to get some sense that there is something there? So the mode of knowing in the purgatory is wonder. People are taking on suffering, but they're glad and they're full of wonder. They want to know. They want to move ahead. They want to keep learning. Uh, and with that learning comes changes. They get better and better and better and better. So we've got two very different actions okay, in those two worlds. Okay, um, remember that when Dante and Virgil arrive on the shores of Pur Purgatory, it's Easter Sunday. That signifies a rebirth, a renewal. Dante has learned to see his sins. Um, and it's interesting, the first thing he has to do is go to the shore, pick up those reeds, and be washed. The reed is a sign of humility. It gives itself up. It breaks. It helps him to wash. It renews. The one thing that he didn't, presumably, the one thing that he didn't have in the beginning when he wanted to go up that mountain is humility. He was proud. Mm. 
know, like, I mean, I'm assuming most of us can identify with that. The, the basic sin, that, you know, at the foot of purgatory is pride. Um, that is the one thing that um, is behind everything else and the hardest thing for most of us to struggle with. Um, first thing he has to do is wash his face. It's a sign that he's put that grime, the sins away. I thought Fred's words, oh, you, I was in the morning class. Um, Fred, last uh, week, when we were talking about um, some moment of decision, I don't remember what the context was. And um, you, Can you recall it? Do you want to recall it? I no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just throw stuff out sometimes. So. I'm not sure. He, I don't remember context. the context, but what he was saying, what he was saying is, that's that moment of decision where you have to look at something straight on and say enough. And he, and he recalled Achilles. Remember when Achilles says it's that moment when you look sin square. You see sin for what it is squarely. You can't deny it anymore. You say it's there, and you find a strength in that moment. Even if you're going to keep failing, and we keep going to confession, that moment represents a major turning point in our life, um, because we have a, it's like a renewed strength to do something. When Dante comes here and washes his face, it's that moment. He knows what sin is. His soul is recommitted now to climbing that mountain. But the whole spirit in which he undertakes that quest now has changed, because he, see, he sees himself more fully as he has We were comparing the two Satans, Milton and Satan. And Flush it out, because I don't know that everybody, what's it, I can't remember the connection. Well, you, you may have covered it before already. Uh, we were just talking about the image that you, that you get with Milton's Satan and the totally different image that you get with Dante's Satan. And the fact that when, when we get to, to Satan and Dante, it's almost a non-event. That you, you, you enter that last phase where you've got guys eating each other's heads. And you're thinking, and now Satan's coming up. It's going to be, it's going to be really significant. And in the end, it turns out to be not so much. And that's how we got into the discussion about yeah. if you look at Achilles in the Iliad and some of the other examples that we talked about in the past, where Dante's faced at this point, he's faced his sins, and it's he's not afraid of it anymore. Whereas you never really get that point in Milton's Satan. Yeah. So. That was that yeah. was what kind of yeah. swung all out. And like Achilles, once he once he doesn't fear death anymore, he's unbeatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not an easy thing to do, but that's that's what these poets have been giving us. Just a a, a brief comment before we go forward, because I want to I want to get to the purgatory more immediately. But as a way of looking back, remember that um, one I think one of the conclusions that we came to after we finished Milton, e even though Satan ultimately gets turned into a toad, for the greater part of that epic, he's presented as somebody heroic. In, in fact, he, he's even presented in a way that I think elicits our compassion for him. There are those moments when he wants to turn back, and I told you how much trouble I have with those, because I, I don't think that's real at all. But, but one of the things we come away from Paradise Lost with is evil is this extraordinary thing. It's very, very powerful. E Adam and Eve had no clue what they're up against. Um, Satan is a this powerful figure. When we see Satan in Dante, he's impotent. 
we know that demons are in the world, and we know we can't take them lightly. The, the demons are doing work. So anybody who's ignoring evil is playing with things. But he does not have the power in the divine comedy that Satan has in Paradise Lost. Milton has magnified the power of evil. It's a much graver force for him, I think, than it is for Dante. Well, good always trumps evil. I mean, that's the whole... So it doesn't really make sense in Milton's time. I don't, I don't grasp it as much because yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I hope everybody understands what, um, what, what she just said. If, if God is all good, complete, and there was nothing before him, nothing greater than him outside of him, and evil is a privation, it's a loss of good, God will never be defeated. He can't. Evil is never going to succeed against him. I mean, you can't say that. Um, um, strongly enough. God's not going to lose. If the world goes down next week, there can't be a doubt about the outcome, outcome of, you know, in, a, in an apocalyptic period, whatever goes on. God's not going to lose. He can't. Um, evil's a privation. It has no way to stand against him. It's one of the reasons I have so much trouble with the, the wars in heaven and the way de you know, the, 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 the fallen angels deceive the good ones. I mean, ontologically, that just doesn't make sense, but Okay, the mountain. A couple of comments on the mountain. The mountain has always been a really important image in literature. Um, just keep in mind the transfiguration. It, it's so appropriate in our context here because Dante's going to climb the mountain with Virgil and, and all the penitents are going to climb the mountain and be transformed. No, nobody, the other way to put it, nobody is going to go to heaven imperfect. And we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. We shall see him as he is. Nobody's going to be there until we're like him. There has to be a purging. There's a couple of biblical um, references for the purgatory. Um, I think it's in Maccabees. I can't remember what the passages were, but nobody, nobody's going to be. Nobody's going to get. Nobody will be in God's presence who isn't like him, perfect. So the purgatory, the mountain, in one sense, represents a purgation, a purifying, a cleansing of the soul, a transfiguration. Um, and as I've suggested before, I think, I think the church is the image of purgation here that I, I really strongly be, believe that our work here on earth should be purgatorial, that we're asked to change our lives to make our lives better, to become better people and to take that seriously and get on. So. Okay, I want to take, before we go to uh, the text, I want to take a minute and go back to the past to pick up something. Those of you who have been with, with doing this for a while, pardon me, but um, in Plato's Republic, which to me is one of the most extraordinary books, and it's a founding book in Western civilization. Plato's taking up the question, what's justice? What is justice? Socrates is the main figure of that dialogue. It's the longest dialogue that Plato wrote. And Plato, or Socrates, is asking these other people what justice is, and, and um, he's leading them into this 
on this journey um, into an understanding of the human soul. And Plato, Socrates, sorry, Socrates will say, if you look at it, the soul is tripartite. It has three, three, three parts, three faculties. There's reason, and then the appetites. St. Thomas would agree. Absolutely. The human faculty is made up of a rational power and an appetitive, an appetite, the desire for things. Those are the two qualities that define the human soul, the rational, the appetitive. Okay? That's it. But Plato makes a distinction between the appetites for higher things, like... Um, truth, goodness, beauty, wholeness, things like that, and the appetites for physical things, wine, food, sex. Themos is the Greek word for anger, remember Achilles. Um, anger comes into play when the good that we seek is threatened. Somebody threatens to take some good away from us or to do us harm. Anger is the emotion we call on to stop, to say don't. Remember, there's a difference between wrath and anger. Yeah. Wrath is a sin, anger is not. Anger is the rectificatory, rectificatory. It's a rectifying. It tries to help. With respect to the emotions from desire to joy or does. Desire to sorrow, anger is the only one that's in between because it resists those. Th it 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 fights to help us get to the joy we want, and it fights to resist those things which threaten it. So the middle faculty consists of the appetites which are directed towards the nobler things. It, it's called into play when something threatens those goods. If there's a good you're after, a beauty or a truth, or okay. Does everybody follow that? One of the examples that Plato gave, I haven't read this in forever, but I think one of the examples that Plato gave um, was, imagine yourself coming to a, 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 a pool in a desert, and you're dying of thirst. Um, and you see a sign that says poison. Warning. Um, part of you, your body, wants to live. So, um, but part of you says no, because you care more about the good of your life and going on. So there's, Plato saw, that's an indication that there are two faculties that are related. It's, you know, something that direct, directly relates to our physical desires, we want water when we're thirsty, but something that's related to something higher. He would have known that from the Iliad, by the way. Um, so the question for Plato over the course of the Republic is, how do we order the human soul? How do we order the human soul? And Plato's um, conclusion was, reason controls the appetites by means of this middle element. And he used the image of a chariot. He used the image of a chariot and a charioteer. It says, every, every soul is like a charioteer. Here's the chariot, and there's two horses. There's a white and a black horse. Demos is the white and the appetite is black. 
the black horse uses the black horse, or sorry, the white horse to bring the to bring the black horse under control, so they can get to their end, and that end for Socrates was a virtuous soul. Um, in the ninth book of the Republic, he makes it clear what happens to the human soul, in what he calls a declension, a decline. When the human soul gives into its appetites too much, it becomes tyrannous. It wants its way. It will use reason, you, you, we all know this, it will use reason to give excuses for itself to do something. But the soul's in a tyrannic mode. It's actually acting against itself. Now, one of the conclusions that he came to in this is, um, some people I badly misread Plato. They see him as making an argument for a totalitarian government, to have a, a government structured this way. Um, Plato's quite clear that that's not what he wants. He says, for any man, any man who loves the order of his own soul, he will work, he will mind his own business, he will do everything he can to order his own soul, so that whatever he does to the world will bring a greater justice to it. But if he doesn't order his own soul, how can he do that? Out of balance, right? We can't right, have to have right. balance. So even if we want justice for somebody else, it won't be as good a justice as we, we could offer if we were better. So the whole direction of the, the Republic is, how do we order our own souls? And he concludes, a political regime that isn't structured to accommodate man's nature, the nature of the human soul, will become oppressive. That is, once a government starts um, um, encouraging the appetites at the expense of any of those things, will bring it on itself its own downfall. So it, it had a political aspect to it, but the principal concern was the ordering of one's own soul. Okay? And we've been here before. The hell that Dante presents us is an image of that cave. Everybody's getting what they want, but they have no sense of the order of their soul or its final end with God. So they're caught, they're caught in Tyrannous souls, they want what they, they, they're there because they get what they want, they want it at the harm at the expense of other people. That's what we saw in scene after scene after scene. Yeah? So, here's Plato's cave. Remember that for, Plato used this analogy he said all of us are like people trapped in caves. Up and back, this was his great allegory, I, I think it's extraordinary. Up and in back of us is a fire, and the light from the fire um, casts shadows on the wall from the people up there, and all the people up there are carrying books. So it's projected on the wall are appearances, shadows, images, because they come from people carrying books. That's another way of saying what shapes our minds? The books we read. And we take them as reality when, as a matter of fact, they're not. Because what he's saying is, even though, even though these people take this as reality, this reality of images is actually three times removed from the light outside the cave, which is unchanging. It is. It is. 
if you go back to the literature that you've read, if you go back to high school, Shakespeare, you know that one of the greatest themes of the literature is appearance versus reality. You've probably been hearing that all of your life, that you read a story that sh the, the reader shows us something that it appears to be the, or the writer, and as we move through the story, we discover that that's not the way things are. Shakespeare, you can't read Shakespeare. Moby Dick, Ahab seems to be the certain kind of character. He gets unmasked through the journey, you know. Um, so, Dante's image of hell is very close to this. It's people who have not learned to order their souls, who don't mind their own business. And, and I think we can go even farther, who've lived their lives hiding behind appearances. One of the, I think one of the beauties of the Spanish cloister is when he crosses his forks and doing, he's doing everything proper. Um, he, he looks like a very pious man who believes in the Trinity and he's calling out friend, or Lawrence. Lawrence, who's not, he says. Um, and what we see is um, there's such a discrepancy between who he is inside and the way that he presents himself outside. So this theme is not a, it's universal. Plato said the only way out of the cave is to begin to question yourself. And the man who did that preeminently was Socrates. Those of you who know the Socratic tradition know. The, here's the basis of the Socratic tradition. Um, it, was, it was rumored that Socrates was the wisest man alive. And by the way, Pope John Paul begins fide ratio with that illusion from Socrates. The importance of knowing your own self. That's the beginning of fide ratio from John Paul. Socrates had a reputation of being the wisest man alive, and he didn't believe it, so he went around asking people to find out, and he discovered that he was the wisest man in this sense, that he was different from other men because he he knew he was ignorant. Everybody else claimed to be wise. They claimed to have all this knowledge. And when he began to question them, he discovered they really didn't know what they said they did. That's why the Socratic dialogues are so ironic. And that's why at the end of his life, everybody attacked him, took him to court, and killed him. Because he embarrassed them. Think about the parallels between Christ and, um, and Socrates. So, the, um, what he's saying is, it's only when a person begins to question himself, questions the books that... Here, let me put this even... Remember, we started this work together when I said, belief is a strange thing. I, I, that's where I started. Somebody growing up in a Muslim country is going to believe in Allah. Somebody who grows up in a Jewish country, is going in a culture, is going to believe in um, Yahweh. Somebody grows up in a Protestant Christian culture, they're going to have a very different understanding of somebody who grows up in a Catholic Christian. That our beliefs shape us so much that it's almost impossible for people to come out of their beliefs. Think about how important Socrates' critique is for that because he's saying, why are we here? If we don't learn to reflect on our beliefs, will we be able to live them fully? John Paul one of the most important things to Catholic Christianity is this whole philosophic tradition that helped man become reflective about his beliefs. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't understand them. He couldn't live them fully. So, the whole, In fact, it's one of the things that the Protestant denominations most hated 
not exaggerating, they thought that Catholicism had become corrupted because it had taken on all of this philosophy over the centuries. It, it wasn't primitive enough. It didn't go back to the original Christ. <coughs> so, one of the central conclusions to come out of this allegory was that and, until a man begins to question himself, he won't come out of the cave. He'd be caught in appearance, saying, this is real and it's not. Every book we've been reading, Moby Dick, Wagner's, The Town, all of them, every one of them has uncovered respectability. People living by appearances and thinking how good they are, and are the, the, the writers showing that that's not exactly what's going on. Okay. Now let me stop here in case there's any questions before I take the next step because Christ has got to come into this now. But any any questions? Is this clear what Plato's what he's saying in the cave? We've been here before, I know. Um, question? No. Anybody? Okay. Here's the interesting thing. I put this strongly enough. Here's the interesting thing, um, and it's one of the, it's one of the differences between Plato and Aristotle, and I think it's one of the one of the reasons for the difficulty with the Protestant world, because it rests far more on Plato than Aristotle. Plato believed that self knowledge was enough to get you out of the cave. Does a Christian believe that? No. Is knowing we're in sin enough to get us out of sin? It's not. It's not. Plato believed that it was by questioning that we could get out of the cave. Socrates is the one who gets out to say, I gets close to here to saying, I don't know this stuff and showing other people that they don't until they kill him. Um, well, this is the pagan world. I mean, they didn't have. Right. So that's all they had. Right. Because their gods were mythology. <laughs> yeah, except for Plato. I mean, Plato, he gives a, you're absolutely right. Plato gives a different cast to this because he says the ultimate source of things is the good, the one. You know, um, but the point I want to make here is that, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. It seems to me one of the faults of Plato is an excessive intellectualism. He vests too much on knowledge. Okay? Now, a Christian believes, I mean, it goes to what you put. Yeah, because that's all he had. Right, yeah. <laughs> a Christian believes, I, I mentioned this to Father a couple weeks before he left, and he was sort of shocked. He said, I never thought about that. Because we take Plato on his own terms. Um, we would believe that it isn't until Christ comes into the cave that we have a means out of it. Because self-knowledge, as, as fundamental as it is to, to our lives as humans, is not enough. Knowing knowledge is not enough. So the great virtue for the pagan world was justice. For Homer, for Virgil, for Plato, for Aristotle, for all the ancient world. This is where we're going right now, because I want to get to purgatory. The greatest virtue in the ancient world was justice. Learning to order your own soul, to make your own soul ordered, so that you could bring justice to whatever you did with other people. Because until you ordered your own soul, you couldn't. There would be something wrong. You had to learn the truth of things. You had to 
learn to bring your emotions into conformity with the truth. You couldn't just feel whatever you wanted. Um, you had to, you had to order yourself. The, the great effort of most of the great classical writers was to order the souls to become, and that, so Cicero, Socrates, Plato, all of them were these men principally concerned with virtue, with being good and just. So justice for the ancient was giving each person his due. That's the definition of justice. Okay? Giving each person his due. What he deserves. And according to them, you can't really do it unless you make your own soul just. You have to order yourself. That means if somebody persecutes you the way they did Socrates, you can't cry. And Socrates went to his death exactly like Christ. Because he knew it would have been wrong to run. His state gave him everything. He owed the state his life. Those were his last dialogues. When his, when his friends came to the prison to say, escape, get away. You don't, you don't deserve this. The last arguments were in defense of suffering for the good that you believe in. Very close to Christ. Now, I don't know. I've never read Plato, so I have no idea. Mm -hmm. How did he, with himself, with the Greek gods, and how did he kind of, did he kind of like dismiss that? And that was just, because that, that's a whole can of fish. Right? It is, it really is. I mean, it's too big to go into. Let me, let me just put it, as, I mean, to try to give you a, a simple, um, and it, I think you'd get different responses from different, if, if you talk to somebody in philosophy, you'd get, a, I think, a different response, but I'm going to bring philosophy and literature together in the way that I can right now. I don't think Plato could have done what he did without Homer at all, at all, at all. Homer formed him. Homer was the greatest figure in the ancient world. Everybody knew he was the great educator. If you go into the Odyssey, into the cave imagery, you already have a prefiguration of this cave. Um, but all the archetypes in, in the world of the Odyssey, if you know them, those are, those are, I think they're formative for Plato and his understanding of the archetypes, the forms. And so he could, not have, he could not have done what he did without the poets. And I want to just, the poets came first, not the philosophers, because the modern philosopher wants to turn that around. The poets came first. They're the ones who saw something in a, a non-conceptual way. Plato and Aristotle gave it a conceptual form. One of the things that Plato does to show that he's moving away from the poets is to say, the Homeric gods are all bad. They're, they're committing adultery, they're yes. fighting with each other, they're killing, they're trying to kill, they can't kill each other. Um, he said, the, uh, um, the ultimate good has to be complete in itself. If it lacks anything, it won't be the ultimate good. And it can't change itself because that means it would lose its goodness. Those are his arguments in the Republic. So on philosophic grounds, he believed that Homer lacks something. And he's critical of Odysseus and the Homeric heroes for all those reasons, because Odysseus was responsive to the gods. Plato said, we cannot have an angry man or an Odysseus who commits adultery when he's away. I mean, I think he completely misreads Homer, but, I, but those, are his, those are his arguments. I, I'm almost not I'm comfortable leaving them there because I think he misreads Homer badly, but says, you can't have a man um, um, allowing himself to be overcome by his passions, the way Achilles did 
or the way Odysseus did when he spent eight years with Calypso and a year with Circe, you know, making love. The, 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 the real hero has to be philosophic. It's Socrates. It has to be a man in complete control of his emotions, or he won't answer the wrong of these other people. So he was both formed by Homer, Homer's in his bones, but he also was critical of him for the reasons I've just given. Okay, is everybody okay? The most important thing I just want to throw out now is for the ancients, and by the way, Old Testament world. The Old Testament is no different. What's the great virtue of the Old Testament world? Justice. So the great virtue of the ancient world, pre-Christian world, was justice. And think about how important that you cannot be just to another person if you don't learn to order your own soul. How hard that is. So they weren't asking something light. We're, we get glimpses of it in Achilles and Odysseus and Socrates and Aeneas. And, the, and, and you remember, where do we see them in Dante's Hell? Virtuous pagans. They're not being punished. They're there because they didn't have faith, hope, and charity. They're good, they were good men, good people. So according to Plato, an intellectual ability was great enough to get out of the cave. If a man questioned himself and learned to turn away from appearances the way the world seemed to be, he could gradually come out of the cave. No Christ. Now Christ enters the world, and what does he come in to do? Because this is purgatory. What did Christ come in to do? He came to answer a wrong, to restore justice. There would have been no reason for him to go to the cross unless man had committed a wrong, and one he couldn't answer by himself. So there was at the center of the human race, after the fall, this, what do you call it, metaphysical, existential condition. It's like a fracture in being had taken place. Something was wrong, and man could not answer it. What does Christ do? He goes to a, he's teaching everybody what to do, and then he himself goes to a cross. He goes to a cross to answer that injustice, and he does what nobody in the pagan world could have imagined. He offers a divine love, not because man deserved it or it was due him, but because it was undeserved. So the great tension that was produced between these two worlds, the ancient world and the Christian, was to give what's due to a man what he deserves, and Christ to offer a love when man didn't deserve it. You can see how radical that is, for us to be loved by God when we didn't deserve it. So the great task facing the Christian world after Christ came and left was to bring those two things together. And we've been seeing that in everywhere. Shakespeare, Dante is doing it right now. Melville, Faulkner, every work we've read is about some love that isn't deserved, somebody bearing a struggle. Remember that all epics took the form of some epic hero coming into the world, Achilles, Odysseus, being given a divinely appointed task to help refound a people, to help a people recover something that it lost. Now Dante's that hero now. We've just left a world which is defined strictly in terms of justice. They, they wanted no mercy. There was no sense in them that they needed it. 
They've got what they want. Now we're ending in a world in which people hunger for mercy. They acknowledge their sin, and they're setting out to do penance. So we've entered a world of hope, faith, love, answering wrongs, injustices. Okay, let me stop. <clears throat> Any questions? This is all, I mean, some of you should know this by heart, I think, probably. Tracy, this is all old, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> no. No? You always throw in new stuff. <laughs> I don't know how I do that, but it, no, it's really true. They're never the same. Never the same. Never the same. So we're on purgatory. So the most important thing to see in purgatory is there's this tension. It's what defines the action up that hill. Everybody's answering a justice. They're being held to it. It goes back to this thing about pity and enabling. You know, you, or justice and mercy. If you're all justice and no mercy, you're cruel. If you're all pity and no justice, you're enabling. The great problem is bringing those two things together. And, and I hope everybody understands how hard that is. What we're watching right now in the purgatorio is the movement from hell to heaven is that action. That's exactly what's taking place. Dante's having to learn to see how a justice is being accomplished with a mercy. That's the action of purgatory. So if hell is an action in which people are Stuck. trapped <laughs> and have become machines, they're just mindlessly repeating the same thing again and again. Purgatory is, a, is an opening of the, of the door into a, a sunlit world. There's prayers, music, joy, laughter, humor, wonder. That's what, that's what's mo that's what is moving people forward. Most people, it seems like they'll be in purgatory because very few can get to paradiso. I mean, you'd have to be most saint-like. Or is that wrong? Say it again, they have to be what? More people are going to end up in purgatory or some parts of it rather than paradise. Going directly. Yes, because yeah. it's more saint-like for sure. me. I mean, that's, yes. I mean, isn't that what no, I, we're kind of told? Yeah, no, no, I think... I, I think that's why the church upholds saints, because they're so rare, because they're doing something really hard and in a way that most of us don't struggle to do. Um, they're giving their lives up completely to holiness. Um, okay, let's turn to the next week. When, by the way, I wanted to ask you, you know, when I, um, I, you've got the study guide, and I'm assuming it's helpful. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty thorough. In the middle of the purgatory, take a look here, you guys. In the middle of the purgatorio, there's several pages with schemes on them. Here, these, look at, you don't, you don't have, here, look, just take a look here. These, these are in the middle of the purgatorio. Um, you tell me, I thought it might help to just take these four pages out and print them off again so you have a separate copy so you don't have to go into the study guide. But I'm not sure. You tell me. If it's a, if it's a waste of time, I'm not going to do it. But if you think it would help, I'll, we'll print some off next week so you have a separate section. Because this is something you really want to stay close to. 
If you want to help yourself move up purgatory, here's the answer. <laughs> you oh, here it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just yeah. Um, can I just get some indication from you? Do you want me to do it or not? How, how many would like me to do it? If you don't want it, I'll leave it. You've got okay. Okay. You can make a few pages. We, what? I don't mind turning a few pages. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Page twenty-five. Okay. It's really good, you guys. The scheme that I've laid out there really makes clear, in a, in a very direct way, what's going on in the purgatory. So. Okay. Can you? Can everybody turn to the, the opening of the purgatory? Bitter waters now the little bark of my poetic powers hoists its sails and leaves behind that cruelest of the seas. And I shall sing about that second realm where man's soul goes to purify itself and become worthy to ascend to heaven. Here let death's poetry arise to life, because remember the poetry so far has been on the dead. I mean it, it is really a dead kingdom, dead kingdom. O muses sacrosanct whose liege I am, He's a servant to the muses. He's serving them, just like all the poets have, the, the major ones. Let Calliope rise up and play her sweet accompaniment in the same strain that pierced the wretched magpies with the truth of unforgivable presumptionness. One of the ancient myths was this guy was so enamored of creative work that he named all of his children after the nine muses. <laughs> and then he... Um, they thought so well of themselves that they felt they could compete with the nine muses, these divine sources, and the gods punished them. Let me just, I just, there, every, everything means for Dante, everything means. Another way of looking at what's going on here is that um, poets want to be careful what they take on. If a poet's going to take on, by the way, all poets don't, and that's why I qualified it the way I did. All poets don't. But if a poet's going to take on divine things, if, if something's going on in him that wants to take on divine things, then he's going to have to learn to serve or that source of inspiration will be cut off from him. So implicitly, what we're seeing here, that's why Dante calls himself a liege. And he'll, he'll make clear later, he'll say, whatever the spirit dictates to me, I write down. But all of this work is the result of his being open to the gods, exactly the way Homer was and Virgil. And a poet who doesn't do that is asking for problems, <clears throat> at least if, he, if he's going to take on divine things. Um, they approach the shore and they see this ancient man, next page 197. I saw near me an ancient man alone whose face commanded all the reverence that any son could offer to his sire. The rays of light from those four sacred stars struck with such radiance upon his face, it was as if the sun were shining at the four stars of the four natural virtues. Um, fortitude, um, prudence, temperance, and justice. Um, it's Cato, and, and here, interesting, this is interesting. 
Um, we're going to discover a number of things here. Who are you two who challenge the blind stream and have escaped from this eternal prison? He said, moving his venerable locks. Who guided you? What served you as a lamp to light your way out of the heavy night that keeps the pit of hell forever black? Are all the laws of God's abyss destroyed? We're going to see Cato get very, very stern in just a minute. Um, and those of you who did the uh, C.S. Lewis's um, Do We Have Faces? You remember late in the book when, when Oriole is beginning finally to come to herself, when she has the dream of her father taking her to the mirror and almost brutally saying, now what do you see? I'm saying that because lots of people don't like fathers. You know, um, he, he wasn't a particularly good father anyway, but there's that moment when nothing less than being severe will help. Cato's got that. He's the guardian of purgatory. So there's a severity here that most people don't want to deal with. <clears throat> 198, already I've shown him all the, all the damned. I want to show him now the souls of those who purge themselves of guilt in your domain. So he gives um, Cato the answer he's looking for. He said, we have not broken heaven's timeless laws. This man still lives. Minos does not bind me. I come from that same round where the chaste eyes of your blessed Marcia still plead with your soul, O blessed heart, to hold her as your own. For love of her then, bend your will to... Now, so he's appealing to Cato's love of his wife, who's in hell. Okay? Allow us to go through your seven realms. Go down a few lines. This is on 199. <clears throat> Marcia was so enchanting to my eyes, he answered then, that while I was alive there was no wish of hers I would not grant. She dwells beyond the evil river now and can no longer move me. By that law decreed upon this day, I issued forth. But if a heavenly lady, as you say, moves and directs you, why your flattery? Why does Dante bring Marcia into this the way he does here? It speaks so directly to what we've been talking about. She dwells beyond the river and can no longer move me by that law directed upon the day I issued forth. Let me put it differently. Does he feel sorry for her? No. Absolutely not. Does everybody understand the dramatic force of this? It, he clicked, Marcy was so enchanting in my eyes, he answered, that while I was alive there was no wish of hers I would not grant. This is a wife whom he loved dearly, dearly. Yeah, but I don't understand. I have that in the, in the notes down here. It sounds like Cato wasn't so great either. Here, okay, and, and by the way, he's here. <laughs> Tracy, you've got the same question. Um, Cato, here, here, wait, hold, this is really good. I'm, I don't want to, I want to be careful because I want to get along here. Um, but Cato was a great Republican, Roman Republican. He, he committed suicide, took his life, and Dante is a stern believer that suicide is a sin, a damnable, potentially damnable sin. There's no question about it. Remember Pierre de Vanya in the, in the Wood of Suicides? That, in fact, that was one of the realms up there, the Wood of Suicides. And yet the man at the base of purgatory took his life. So what's going on? he gave his wife away. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really understand. <laughs> like, so we don't know the rest of Cato's story. 
Yeah, yeah. Fill it out. Could you justify, with, with as little as you know, can you justify why he would be here? I think, like Fred said, he oh. must no. have repented at some point. <laughs> he wasn't in his when he killed himself. Yeah, I don't know how you can do that. Well, you're right. You're right. Because then you would I have no idea why he's here. <laughs> Dante wouldn't put him here if that were the case. Because if he said you weren't, you're right. right. Wait, they didn't believe in madness the way. We excuse madness today. We make it a sort of psychological thing. Dante would not have believed that. He took his life in his love. Wait, there's a difference. There's a difference between taking your life because you don't want to suffer the humiliation of being conquered, which is very Roman, and taking your life because you believe in freedom more than anything else. Cato's here because his love of freedom was that great. Because remember, the whole, the whole purpose of the action of purgatory is to help man recover his original freedom, what he lost with the fall. Cato was a stern, stern defender of freedom. He believed in it more than anything else. And so he killed himself because he believed that? Yes. I think the important thing here is whatever, because he's, he's certainly going to fly in the face of a lot of modern beliefs. I think the important thing here is that he, he took his life in love of freedom, very stern, and here Dante brings up Marcia as a way of furthering the work that he's been doing with pity that that law is in place, and as much as he loved his wife, he can't. And by the way, just so you know, th there's going to be some hard things in purgatory, because we're going we're to find family members divided. I mean, I'm assuming when you guys come across no. those, it's not going to be... <laughs> I, I'm assuming that that's not going to be easy for me, because you're going you're gonna to encounter a father whose son is in jail, or hell, or a sister whose brother's in hell, or vice versa. You know, the, you're going to see family separated just if, if, if this is remember Christ I came to divine mother from daughter, daughter father yeah, from yeah. son um, Christ is quite clear in that there, and he said some people won't be here he called the one guy and the one guy said no let me go bury my father First, yeah. and Christ says let the dead bury the dead that's almost <coughs> a, um, an indictment of a human being as being a living among the living dead you cannot let your family relationships keep you from him if you do that, you're making your families gods. And he even said explicitly, any man who puts his mother ahead of me or father ahead of me or... So we're going to come to that when we get to the... Interesting, just to look at. And the level of pride when we get there, the first thing we have to deal with at the level of pride is family relationships. This is not an accident. And we're, because, as I think about this, is getting ahead, but when I think about what, what Dante's dealing with, and what Christ deals with in the Bible, it seems to me the two greatest concerns that Christ has in the world are the religious authorities and families and the dangers that they present to themselves. Bob, could you flesh out a scenario where this love of freedom trumps the suicide aspect of killing oneself? I can't, Carl, beyond what I've said. I, I think, well, I mean, I don't know how to put it this way or any other way except to say, that um, I think the typical response of the Roman, like the samurai, yeah, is despair. It's pride that you you don't you don't want to let your, your pride is so great in something that rather than well, no way, maybe I can do it this way. 
Christ suffered every possible humiliation. Every possible human. He was God. So family, friends, nothing could get... Those of you who did the, the two and a half faces. You know, when, when Oriole was going through her temptations, the last greatest temptation was a family. It was her sister. Christ could let nothing keep him from saving everybody. For him to do that, he had to undergo every conceivable humiliation and ask us to do the same. How many of us are capable of putting our pride away, particularly concerning the things we most love, like our family, when those moments come? So it seems to me one of the ways to look at these suicides is their, their pride. A samurai soldier, he takes his pride in being able to do what he does so well that the possibility that he would be humiliated, that his pride would suffer, is enough. That is, that is honor is more important than anything else. Undergo humiliation like that. When you see that, you see the difference between Christianity and the rest of the world. So it seems to me the, the, what's behind that honor, that, that sense of nobility, when a person takes his life, a Roman or a samurai, is actually pride. I think what Dante is showing us here, in, in Cato's case, that wasn't the case. He was not despairing. You can imagine people, if they were going to get Cleopatra and Anthony do it, I wish we could do that play, but um, but Romans would do that. It was not an uncommon act for Romans to do it. Um, I, clearly, if this means anything, Dante knows that. Dante knows that. For him to put Cato here is his way of saying two things. One is, we have to be careful of the way we make our judgments, because very often we make our judgments black-white. Somebody commits suicide, mm -hmm. bad. Number one. Number two, the, the, the presentation of Cato in the old histories that he would have known, and, and, and Dante's understanding is, he didn't do that out of despair. That wasn't to avoid humiliation, it was because he loved freedom so much. And this is to the time when the Roman Empire is collapsing, and the freedom that Rome lived for was vanishing. So I understand all of what you said that makes it bad. But what I, I can't envision yet is a scenario of this love of freedom. You know, what does that look like? Let's go on, because I can't. I mean, honestly, I, I, there's nothing more I can add. Um, okay. the, I, guess, I guess I really thought that he had repented at the very end. Well, even if, if, you, if you look at this line, she dwells beyond the evil river now and can no longer move me by the law decreed upon the day I issued forth. And if you read the subtext on the previous page down there, the implication is that Marcia never repented, but in the final hour he did. And that was the difference. Yeah, the, see, but the, and the, the, the only difficulty I have with that is um, Cato would not have understood repentance the way we would. He was Roman, not Christian. So repentance doesn't have the meaning. Hold on, just what had a meaning for the ancient Rome was law and, and freedom. The, the, and, and by the way, how deep this is, shake, by the way, look at Shakespeare. Um, Coriolanus. Julius Caesar, Anthony Cleopatra. Those are his three Roman plays. The, the great concern for the Roman world, as Shakespeare understood as Dante, was freedom, a, a republic. The reason the nobles killed Caesar, killed him, 
We see this in hell because Satan's, you know, eating Judas and, or I mean, uh, Cassius and Brutus, is because Caesar was taking away their freedom. He was going to put them under an emperor again. So Rome had been destroying itself with all of these civil wars, actually for centuries. I can't look at it without thinking of America today, and freedom for us means what it did 200 years ago. So is Cato moving? Is what? Is he moving? Everyone in purgatory seems to he's not. Mm-hmm. He's there, but he's not moving. That's a good, that's a good... He, that's a good, he's the guardian. On, the, on an allegorical level, if we can put it that way, he's an image of that sternness, that love of freedom that is so stolid, so set, um, that it would be willing to risk its life for it. Um, he's not going up. He's stuck there. He's the gate. You can put it that way, yeah. <laughs> allegorically, he's an image of the guardian of... He's not in hell. He has some recollection of, I mean, he, 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 there's something tender in him for Marcy, but he will not, he's, I mean, those lines to me are amazing. Can no longer move me by that law decreed upon the day I issued forth. That is, once you die, you're either going to hell or heaven. Let's, let's go on. Turn the next page, 200. Dante and Virgil go to the shoreline to wash Dante's face. At last we touch upon the lonely shore that never yet has seen its water sail by one who then returned to tell the tale. There as another willed, he guided, girded me, O miracle, when he pulled out the reed immediately, a second humble plant sprung up from where the first one had been picked. What's the illusion here? We've already, we saw a similar episode. We just went through it. At last we touched upon the lofty shore that never yet has seen its water sailed by one who then returned to tell the tale. There as another will, come altre piace. Where did we just see that? I guess I just saw that as a reflection of once you're there, you don't go back. Yeah, it is. But we also, the, the imagery is exact you can't look back. And we just saw it in another canto. Oh. Do you have it? I'm not looking back. Hmm? Well, when he... When, when he Wait, hold on a second. I don't know, was it in the beginning? At the beginning was one. Yeah. And... He didn't look back was at the beginning, that shoreline. We just went through this, remember? Through that pass that nobody had ever swam through alive? Who was that? Francis, do you have it? The Ulysses scene. Remember he tried, and there's that exact description, going to the mountain, and the exact words were, as another willed, in, in Italian. Come altrui piace, piace. Do you remember that I said that it, it went back to that in the very first canto where Dante tried to go up and he couldn't, and, he, and it describes him as a swimmer who had never gotten through a pass. Yeah. And then when it describes a Ulysses ship going down, exactly the same way, that he tried to do something that he shouldn't have done as another will, the ship goes down. The people here are, are here only because God willed them. People gave themselves to what God wanted. 
That's that law. Once you die, you either off to hell or on your way to heaven. Um, on page 203, they approach the mountain, the ship arrives with souls. Um, it's a touching scene. Here, um, he meets Casella, an old friend, 204. Casella recognizes, this is interesting, God Dante's, I mean, Casella recognizes him immediately and, and rushes towards him in the middle of 204. Oh, empty shades whose human forms seem real. Three times I clasped my hands around his form, as many times they came back to my breast. Dante didn't recognize him at first. Casella recognized him. But as soon as he talks, then gently he suggested I not try, and by his voice, I knew who the shade was. I begged him, stay and speak to me a while. I make this journey now, oh my Casella. This is really interesting. The two are so taken with each other. On the middle of page 205, um, Casella, if no new law prevents remembering or practicing those love songs that once brought peace to my restless longing in the world, because both of them were love poetry, they love music. You know that Dante did, and they would, Italians would have loved the, the music. And um, if no new law prevents remembering, I said, pray, sing, and give a little rest to my poor soul which burdened by my flesh has climbed this far and is exhausted. You remember that Dante is going to, I mean, he's going to have trouble climbing this whole thing. He keeps getting tired out. And Virgil has, Virgil has to wait and be patient while he also says, get going, get going, get going, keep up. Um, my master and myself, um, when they start singing, Amore che ne la mente mi Rajona began the words of his sweet melody. Their sweetness still is sounding in my soul. My master and myself and all those souls that came with him were deeply lost in joy, as if that sound were all that did exist. And while we stood enraptured by the sound of those sweet notes, a sudden cry, what is this, you lazy souls? It was the just, notice that word, just old man. What negligence to stand around like this, run to the mountains, shed that slough, slew, which still does not let God be manifest in you, just as a flock of pigeons. So they all fly off. Virgil is downcast. Once again, his head is down. But stop for a moment. What's the importance of this scene? This is the beginning of the purgatory. Can you picture another scene at the beginning of the inferno that it lines up with? Well, when they first arrive, they're dropping, they're dropping the souls off that you know are, are are basically have to be convinced to, to move on into the you know to, to, to the purgatory itself for judgment, but they're all reluctant to begin, and one can understand why. But in this case, what what I think Cato is saying is you should be excited and anxious to move on because there is there is a final a final end. That yeah. I'm not sure that, I mean, I think they're all, remember Casella, this is interesting, Casella tried for three months to, to leave. He wanted to leave. They're, they're all eager to go. Um, it wasn't until the Pope made a plenary indulgence that the date got moved up. He says that here. But think about when um, hell proper began, the first scene in which we saw sin and what caused the sin. 
Casella and all the souls on that ship come singing. They're looking forward to doing penance. It's where they want to be. And, and he, Dante describes them as being one. Singing is one. They, they're united. Um, they, so for a moment they get distracted because they're still carrying the world with them. Remember they're coming. The song is in Exidu Israeli de Egypto. They're coming from Egypt. For Dante, the world is Egypt. Our world is Egypt for Dante. To, to become healthy, we have to step outside of our world or we're taken by it. So the souls want to be here. What happens in this moment is instead of going on, they sing. They're so caught up remembering what, <laughs> that they don't get on with what they should be doing. Hold on just for a second. Remember how the inferno began. What put Francisco and Paola in hell? They were reading that poem or whatever and they got they were reading poetry. <laughs> they were reading poetry. They were reading the one of the Arthurian romances. Remember, and when I think Lancelot and Guinevere were kissing, they said, "And we read no more that day." It's interesting to me. I don't. This is not an accident. Dante begins the Inferno, the Hell proper, and he begins Purgatory with a critique of art. That's his way of showing just how serious this is. Cato's words, what are you doing? Get on. Because it's so easy to get caught up in a, in a song or work or something that offers relaxation or ease. Or Anyway, I don't think this is an accident. I think it's Dante's way of showing how, how great art is and how dangerous it is. Um, they go up the mountain. Virgil is ashamed again. Um, and all the souls they begin to talk with um, are struck with wonder seeing that Dante's actually in his body and his body casts a shadow because the rest of the souls are, are bodiless. They don't have a... Um, what we see right here, I'm just going to draw this, in, well, not, what I want to do is just give you a sense and then we'll stop. In the shores of Purgatory, Dante should, gives us um, two, this is anti-Purgatory, before the souls start. And the first group are those who are excommunicated. Being excommunicated doesn't mean you're damned. Never has for the church. It just puts you outside of communion. And Dante is clear in that. The souls here have to wait 30 times the length of time that, it, um, that they didn't use to move themselves into the church and begin to do penance, which is what's supposed to go on in the church. The, um, the what's the next? Um, the late repented, those who, who were in the church but repented, has three, the late repented, has three levels. Now think about this too because um, um, there are different, there are different stages of late repentance, there's three of them, and there's excommunicated. So once again, there's trees within trees. Okay, we've got the mountain, Eden, and anti-purgatory. 
right? So there's three sections, once again, anti-purgatory, purgatory, and Eden. Anti-purgatory has three with one outside of it. There's three levels here that we will meet and one outside because they didn't start. Um, and then there are the three levels. So once again, there's these Trinitarian structures to everything going on. Um, and I think, I think we will, hold on, I think we'll stop. I wanted to look at um, a couple of more. Let me just look quickly. Let me do Biocante um, very, very quickly. We'll come back. 221. I'll go over this a little bit more carefully when we meet next week. But 221, he comes across Biocante, and Biocante describes what happens when the, um, he's a Ghibelline um, at war with the Gelfs and was killed, and his body never found. And we get a story about it here. Once he was killed, he crawled off and um, got taken up a river, and nobody ever saw him again. But here's the, on page 221, he said, Beyond it takes another name, and there I made my way, my throat an open wound, fleeing on foot and bloodying the plain. There I went blind, I could no longer speak, but as I died, I murmured Mary's name, and there I fell and left my empty flesh. That's the moment of death. Now hear the truth, tell it to living men. God's angel took me up, and hell's fiend cried, O you from heaven, why steal what's mine? And what do we learn from this? We're, we're here in the late repentant. I'll, I'll break this down more clearly when we meet. Um, <clears throat> he didn't start penance early enough in his life, and here he dies. So he's in the section with the late repentant. What do we learn here about this section? It's never too late. Never too late. So long, so long as the, there is the barest, I, this is so important, Dante is so clear. So long as there is the smallest desire in a human soul, he cries out Mary at the end. So long as there is just a, a, you know, the smallest spark, mm. it's enough for That's why I have trouble with Satan. Because you, know, you know, when you have those moments where he's grieving like he wants to go back, because I believe, I believe this <laughs> in my bones. If there's anything in us, no matter how bad our sins, no matter how bad our sins, if there's anything in us that longs for God, God's got something to work. So where is he in this? Card. Where is he? Where? Yeah. The page? The no, in the, the part. Yeah, the mountain part. He's in the in the late repentance. There's a group of them here. I'll come to them next week. Oh, okay. okay. He, but he's in the late repentance. Still the anti purgatory. Yeah. There are all these souls that we're dealing with right now have not started purgatory. Dante's going up anti before purgatory. He'll come to it shortly. Right now he's dealing with people who haven't started because they put off penance during their life. And now they have to undergo this period before they can actively start it. So where's Cato? Cato's on the shore. He's, he's, he's down here. He's down there. Okay. All right. He's oh, kind of like the gatekeeper. Right? Well, he, no, really he really is. He really is. But the gate of purgatory is up here. 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 So here. Here. Here's, here's the shores. Okay. Cato's at the shore. Okay. Dante's here in anti-purgatory, okay. dealing with souls that put off. He's in a moment. We're going to see that he's going to go up to the gate, St. Peter's Gate, and start purgatory proper. Oh, okay. But right now he's in anti-purgatory. It's, so it's, it's all these enough. souls who put off 
yeah. doing penance. When he goes through the gate, and I said this for remember, he will go up unconscious. People only enter into that as a grace. He'll 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 be taken up on eagle's wings. He'll brought to he'll be brought to the gate, um, St. Peter's gate. He'll be led in, and then he and Virgil will start purgatory proper. Seems like this would be a better place for Virgil. <laughs> Say it again. I can't understand why Virgil's not here. Yeah, I've, I've always had trouble with that. But anyway, I'm going to go over this again next week. I'll put the scheme out. But all, but it's on. It's also on your notes. I think pretty clearly. But um, but I'll we'll we'll pick up here and I'll go through it more clearly. Here's the thing I want to say. What I, I wanted to get, we'll get to it next week. One of the lovely things in these first opening passages when Dante comes across these souls who are in anti-purgatory, they haven't started yet, is they're singing songs and they're praying. And the, so, the songs are, they're singing songs before the night comes. They're putting the soul to rest. You know, um, every song is appropriate for an occasion. There's such a sense of mild, peace in, the, in, in all that's going on in purgatory. There's this wonderful sense of peace, a joy, a looking forward, a hope. We're, we're out of hell. We are in another world now. I called on you. You going to talk to me anymore? I love that story. Stand there and look. Say again. I said you should stand there with someone inside. And yeah, I was laughing in my head. Say again. What? I said you should look. When you go inside the church, you should check. Oh, I just—I had a perk. No, I, <laughs> the way you describe it, there's no way I could not visualize it. It's. 